If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to uh, John 20, uh, John, the Gospel of John. We're going to get to John 20 in just a minute. Just open to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, and uh, we are going to actually spend a lot of time in John over the next few weeks. So if you wanted to, you could even just like read through John over these next few weeks. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series uh, today in the new year called Seeing is Believing. Seeing is Believing. And I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself before, gosh, if I could have just seen the miracles of Jesus, it would have been so, it'd be so much easier to believe, right? Have you ever said that out loud or maybe thought that? Gosh, if I could just see, if I could have just sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his teachings and, and touched him and shared a meal, gosh, it would be so much easier uh, to believe in Jesus. Just me or anybody else ever thought that? Well, here's the deal, is um, we don't have that uh, privilege, right? Uh, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He was a human form, and, uh, and, and so we've got to rely on eyewitnesses. Uh, and when we believe something, we believe something, not just in the church or, or, in, uh, or, or things related to faith, but we believe something because of the evidence that we see. Or we believe in the testimony, someone that we trust. I hope you never hear from me that you just need to believe because it says it in the Bible, or you just need to believe uh, because Jesus said so. We have faith, we believe because of the evidence laid before us in Scripture, in people's lives. But this idea of just having kind of blind faith, if you will, I don't know. I, I know we, we kind of think about that sometimes, but that's not what we're talking about. That's certainly not what we're talking about for the next few weeks. And we're going to spend some time with an eyewitness person, someone who had a front row seat for three years with Jesus. Day in and day out, uh, the Apostle John was with Jesus, and he got to hear the teachings, and he got to see the miracles and so we're going to listen to this eyewitness account over and over and over uh, for the next few weeks. So we're going to get really familiar with John. Now, John is an interesting guy because uh, he was just kind of minding his own business. And if you know the story of John, uh, he was the son of Zebedee. And he was a fisherman uh, in his dad's business. And one day Jesus came along and said, follow me. And it's not like in that moment, all of a sudden, John just started walking blindly. Okay, I believe you, Jesus. That is not the story of John. For whatever reason, he put down his net and he followed Jesus, this rabbi, because there was just this little something, um, maybe intuition, something in his gut, that John's just like, I'm going to check this out. And over and over, as you read throughout all the Gospels, all the people who interacted, who interfaced with um, Jesus, there was this, I believe, I don't believe. There was this wrestling match going on and on and on, over and over and over. They were not just a bunch of people that believed it because Jesus said it. They, they examined the evidence. They examined it hard. They were not just superstitious people. They were not gullible people. They were smart people who really, truly wrestled with who this guy Jesus was. And they continued to see miracles before their eyes. And they're like, I don't know, is it? I'm not sure, over and over and over. And toward the end of John's life, keep in mind, when John wrote the Gospel of John, 
Peter had been martyred. He was dead. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he had been martyred. He was dead. In fact, all the disciples at this point in time were dead. John's the last guy standing, and I don't know exactly know how it worked. I think it was probably a group of people from the church who looked at John and said, John, you're an old man. You're an old man, and you're the last guy standing. Everybody else is gone. You need to get this written down on paper so that future generations are going to know who was this Jesus. You're the last eyewitness of the disciples, of the apostles. So John, write it down. And you maybe know this, uh, but Peter uh, actually also uh, wrote down his eyewitness front row account of Jesus. He wrote it to a guy by the name of Mark, as a, Mark was a scribe, so it's the Gospel of Mark. That's Peter's version of his eyewitness account. Then there was Matthew. Matthew was a disciple, another guy who had a front row seat, and we read about Ma in Matthew's Gospel all the things that he heard and saw and witnessed. Uh, and then there was Luke. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. He did not have a front row seat that we know of. Luke was more like a newspaper reporter. In fact, Luke starts his gospel by saying, I've investigated all these people. I've spoken to a lot of eyewitnesses. I've kind of canvassed everybody. And I'm going to write an orderly account. This is what happened. This is how Jesus uh, uh, came into the world. And this is who Jesus was and is. That's Luke's accounting. But John, John had a front row seat. And he says, this is what I want to tell you about what I saw and heard. Because it was so overwhelming and it was so compelling. And while you and I cannot literally see the miracles that Jesus did, in, recorded in scripture, John did. And it's up to us to examine the evidence of Jesus' life and then figure out what to do with this evidence. And so John wrote this gospel. Gospel literally means good news. John thought this was good news for us. So let us pray and invite the Holy Spirit to open our, our minds. God, we thank you for John. There's so much, Lord, that we want to know about you, but that we don't have a firsthand accounting. But John did. And so, Lord, make us open this morning. Help us to be attentive to what you want us to hear. Give us encouragement, because, God, we need encouragement. Give us strength, because I know some of us are tired. Give us hope because we're feeling hopeless. And challenge us, God, because we need to share your good news with others who don't know you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A little over a year ago, I got a note in the mail government inviting me to serve as a grand juror and for uh, nine Wednesday mornings I was invited uh, to travel down to the McLean County Courthouse up to the fourth floor into a room with 
14 other jurors. Now, I will be honest with you, I played hooky a few times uh, because I had Bible study and some other things going on a few Wednesday mornings. And uh, let's just, yeah, so I called in sick, if you will. I just said I can't make it today. I didn't lie. I just said I can't make it today. You have more important things to do, like hang out with my people, right? So I didn't go every week, but I was supposed to be there uh, for nine Wednesdays in a row. And if you've ever been on grand jury duty, it's a little bit different than uh, jury duty. For several hours, uh, we would sit in this room and lawyers and law enforcement people would come into the room with several dozen uh, different cases uh, that they were presenting to us as the grand jurors. And if you've ever watched Perry Mason or Law and Order, you know, it's, it's they kind of go through all the facts, the lawyer and the law enforcement people, they work together to kind of tag team this. This is what happened. This is what happened. And frankly, a lot of the cases, um, it was a lot of uh, narcotics, a lot of theft, um, human trafficking. I mean, many Wednesday mornings I'd go back home and uh, I was a little rattled by, um, there's a lot of crime in our community, just a little FYI. Right, And so it was across the county, and they would present case after case after case after case. And again, if you've ever been in grand, uh, grand jury duty or jury duty or watched a television so, show, you know mostly how this works. It's, it's the facts and, and the, the, uh, the allegations of these are the things that happen. But then there's another part of presenting all these cases to the grand jury because we got to make a decision. Do we uh, uh, allow the, this case to go forward, to go to trial, to, to go before a judge, to have, you know, uh, maybe even go before a jury? And so we got to make a decision. And so we're really paying attention to the evidence, to the facts, the what happened allegedly. But in addition to that, we also oftentimes were given the why. Right? It's the motive. This is why we think he did it. This is why we think she committed this particular crime. And so you're paying attention to both the what as well as the why, because, I mean, these things got to make sense, right? Somebody needed to have probable cause to do whatever uh, they are being accused of doing. And this is really kind of the, the, the whole idea of what we're going to get at today as John is laying out his case for why did he write this gospel? Why did he write this document that we just call very uncreatively John? Why did he do it? He tells us right in here, right in this very document, why he wrote this gospel, this document to us and to all future generations. And I don't know if you ever in college or high school, you had to write, like, write a, a thesis statement or a, a purpose statement. And right at the top of your, your, your term paper, you would write, this is the big idea. This is what I'm heading for. This is why I wrote this essay. This is exactly what John does is he tells us, this is why I wrote all these things down. And he does it at the end of his gospel. He doesn't do it at the top. Apparently, he didn't have uh, freshman uh, research paper orientation or something like that. But this is what he writes. Go ahead and, Brady, Brady, put it up there on the screen for me. In John 20, this is what John writes to let us know. He writes this. Yes. Um, G oh, shoot. There we go. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that through believing you may have life in his name. John tells us, this is why I wrote these things, so that you might believe, so that you might understand, and so that you might respond in belief to these things. And John says, I was an eyewitness, and I'm going to lay out my case before you like a lawyer in a courtroom. I'm going to show you seven different signs, miracles, manifestations of God, things that are supernatural. I'm going to lay out a court case for you, seven different signs so that you can understand and then you can respond and believe. And when you believe, Jesus offers you life and abundance that you can truly live. So that's why John did it. And he lays out his case for us in uh, this Gospel of John. So today we're going to hit um, the first piece of evidence, the first sign. And then over the next six weeks, we're going to look at uh, six more signs that John lays out. Uh, so that we can uh, investigate. We're all reporters. We're all uh, investigators in this. We're all jurors. Uh, we're here to listen. And then we're here to respond uh, to what John has, has offered us as evidence, as eyewitness testimony to who this Jesus was. Uh, and, have, uh, and, and step out in, in the invitation to believe. Okay, now here we go. John 2. There we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And we're going to stop just right there. Brady, we're going to go really slow here, so hang with me. No sleeping over there, all right? So the very first thing that John tells us, there was a wedding at Cana. Cana is about four miles from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It's really close. And John gives us this level of detail, not just because, oh, that's interesting, but he's trying to say, this really happened in this location. And if you've ever you know, kind of investigated something, you want to know the exact spot where it happened. It's not once upon a time. There's this guy named Jesus. He did something in a galaxy far, far away, right? I mean, that's not this. One day there was a wedding in Cana, and everybody knew where Cana was. It's, very, it's a small town, um, very close to um, Nazareth, where Jesus uh, grew up. Jesus' mother was there. Again, there weren't... If, you're, if you don't believe me, go talk to Mary. She was there. You can ask her. She was there. There was another witness. Go talk to her. The, Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, which tells us John was there. This is not hearsay. John didn't read about this wedding in the newspaper. He had a front row seat. Seat. He saw this wedding with his own eyes and all that was going on, as did all the disciples. So check out the witness list. There were a bunch of us there. John is trying to establish credibility in terms of this event. This is not a fairy tale, a story, a legend. He said it really happened. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, well, now all of a sudden we've got a problem, right? The wine is gone. And in ancient cultures, whoever's putting on the wedding's got to pay for the, the stuff, right? 
This is like uh, throwing a, a, a wedding and you run out of birthday cake. Dan, you just got married not that long ago, right? Did you have a birthday cake? A birthday cake? Uh, wedding cake? <laughs> wedding cake? <laughs> just checking to make sure you're awake there, Dan. <laughs> enough birthday cake at your wedding? We, I'm not sure that we had enough for everybody, actually, because I heard from a few people they didn't get it. Is that right? Okay. So you still remember, right? Yeah, well, if, if you were in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, you would be uh, horrified. That would have been a terrible... You don't seem very upset about it. Well, I, I was a little bit. Were you a little upset? But they kind of made it sound like they just didn't get up there. And yeah, that's, I'm sure that's what happened. I'm sure there was plenty of wedding cake, right? <laughs> but this would have been an incredible, uh, huge social faux pas in ancient cultures. And people would have talked about it. And they're going to be talking about it at your wedding for years and years and years. <laughs> And, and people might even think, oh, this might bring, bring bad luck on the couple, right? Because they messed up with their wedding. And weddings were a big deal in their culture. They could last up to a week long. It wasn't just to show up, you know, for a day and, and do the deal. But it was, it was a big, big party. And they have run out of wine. So, um, you know, we hear this and we're like, oh, okay. You know, maybe react like Dan a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a big deal, Okay. <laughs> It was a really big deal. And Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is a little detail that I think we kind of miss. She's horrified. But even more importantly, Mary's been waiting for this day for a long time. Remember just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas? And there were angels, and there were shepherds, and there were wise men. And I don't, you know, I don't know when you had children uh, who showed up at the hospital, who was in your birthing room, but um, Mary had a lot of people, right? And over and over and over, everybody was saying the same thing. This is the Messiah. What this child of yours is not just uh, Jesus. This is the Messiah who has come to rescue us. And Mary's playing these tapes over and over in her head. And she's even remembering back to when the angel first came to her and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And so Mary's thinking, I'm going to have a baby. Um, and then, then this angel comes in and, and tells her that it's from God, from the Holy Spirit. And for years, now decades, Mary has lived in this community and probably experienced a lot of scorn and shame that she had this baby before she and Joseph had consummated uh, their marriage. And so she's waiting for this day. She's waiting and waiting and waiting. And she's looking around for a sign so that she could whisk Jesus onto the scene so Jesus could start doing what he was going to do. That's to rescue his people. And so Mary's looking around and she's like, Jesus, it's time. Do your thing, right? It's time. Verse 4. Woman. Yeah, so just a little, little tip here, guys. Do not address your mother as woman, okay? And then say, well, I'm just quoting Jesus, right? That's not going to fly in your house, right? And I think in the translation, we miss a little bit of the, the nuance in terms of what is actually how Jesus is addressing his mother. It's more like madam or ma'am. So he's saying to her, Mom, no, mom, 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. It's like Jesus is like, I came to rescue the world. I didn't come to rescue a wedding, right? This whole idea of they run out of wine, it just doesn't sound very messianic, right? It just kind of sounds like, ah, it's a a party. My time has not yet come. And I love how his mom responds. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, have you ever complained to your mom and said, I don't want to do that? And your mom doesn't respond to you? Anybody That ever happened to anybody? Right? It's, it's kind of like, Mom, I don't want to do that. And Mary, she doesn't even respond to Jesus. She just walks away. She looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Right? I, moms can do that, right? They can look at their kids and go, go clean your room. And they're like, Mom. And she just walks away, right? It's, it's, this, it's this conversation of, I'm not have, we're not having this conversation. Has anybody ever heard that from your mom? We're not having this conversation. Maybe you are the mom who said that. We're not having this conversation. Mary puts Jesus in his place. She says, Jesus, we're not having this conversation. Then she looks at the servants and says, go take, do whatever he says. I love that. Mary completely puts Jesus in his place. Nearby stood six stone uh, water jars, the kind uh, used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding uh, 20 to 30 gallons. Now, a couple things. Uh, again, because we're not uh, Jewish people and we don't probably understand the ancient Jewish cultures and, and customs. What this tells us in this story of what's going on in this event is that these were Orthodox Jews. These were practicing Jews. That they actually used ceremonial washing to do stuff. I mean, they were faithful people. These were church-going people. These were devout Jewish people. This was not just a random group of people, but they were Jewish uh, uh, Yahweh followers. They were people who absolutely followed all the rules and the rituals of old the Old Testament. And, and so what it tells us here with these six stone jars, these six stone jars are symbolic. They represent the covenant between God and God's people, because that's what ceremonial washing uh, entailed. Uh, that's what it symbolized. It's, it's this, God said, here, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And these are the things you're going to do. And these are the things I'm going to do. Just like how Jeff opened our worship today. You know, I'm going to take care of you, but these are the things you need to do. And that's what this ceremonial washing uh, represented and symbolized. And so what in this symbolism, what, what Jesus is, is, is communicating or John is communicating through this story is that there's something new to about to happen. There's something brand new that it's about to happen. And God is going to take something that is old, the ceremonial rites, the, the, the religion of old, and do something new and transform uh, them into something completely new. And I know it's easy to really miss this little detail, but again, these are significant details. These are, these are not just kind of random, interesting little uh, factoids uh, that, are, that are put in uh, these, these different kinds of uh, ideas for us to think about. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Um, 
Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been turned into the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper uh, wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. And so here's this wedding feast, this sign that God is up to something new in the world. And the symbolism, again, we just can't miss it. This first sign, this first miracle that Jesus is about to unfold, it's a sign of you are sitting at a feast, and I want to invite you to know that there is a better feast coming. And it's that imagery, that foretelling of that there's a greater banquet, there's a greater story going on. Just wait. Sit on the edge of your seat because God is saying he's got something really good, really exciting, and a big party uh, for us. The other thing that's, that's going on here is they, t- they talk a little bit more about this wine, uh, is the quantity of wine. This is a lot of wine. Now this is, I don't know how many people were at the wedding, probably a couple hundred, maybe, maybe, probably not that many, maybe just a few dozen. But the quantity of wine in these six stone jars, that's enough for about uh, a little over 2,000 glasses of wine, right? For just a couple dozen people. Can we all agree that that's plenty of wine for a party, right? I don't care if it is a week long. That is plenty of wine. And so what Jesus is communicating in this miracle is this quantity that it's more than enough. The first sign that Jesus gives is that my life, his life, is more more than enough than we could ever imagine. So oftentimes we ask Jesus for this, and he's like, no, I want to give you this, right? It's this idea of abundance that he's come to give us so much more than what we ask for or that we can even imagine. I mean, these are the kind of details that that are going on in the story. It's it's, it's about this, this idea of quantity. I'm going to give you so much more. I'm going to give you an abundant life. But it's also, of course, this idea of quality. The, ver- the, the text says you've saved the best until last. See, this isn't some kind of cheap knockoff wine, right? This is the very best stuff. And the symbolism here is Jesus says, I have come to bring the best. More, anything better than you have ever tasted before. That's who Jesus is. He's come to bring us the very best. He didn't just come to to bring his leftovers. He's come to give us his best and who he is. Amen. That's right. Isn't it great? I love this. The symbolism is so rich. I think it's interesting that the first sign is Jesus steps onto the stage. It's not healing. It's not walking on water. It's not even raising someone from the dead. It's transformation of water to wine. I, I think it's the perfect sign to step onto the stage. And John says, this is my first piece of evidence that I want you to know. And I saw it with my own eyes. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee 
was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. So what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think oftentimes when we talk about believing, it's this idea of mentally assenting into something, right? And it's this idea of, I believe uh, that something is real. And part of the problem uh, with our English language is we don't have the nuances of what's going on in the text that was originally written in Greek. The Greek word is pistuo. And pistuo uh, is, is a very kind of uh, unique, nuanced idea of what it means to believe. Let me give you an example here. So, for example, I believe that there is a football team in Chicago, right? Everybody else believe that, that there is a football team in Chicago? I do not believe in that football team in Chicago. You hear the nuance? Pistuo. It's believing that versus believing in. And oftentimes when we talk about, if, if you grew up in the church, you might believe that there is a God, right? It's this idea, I believe that there is a God out there. But that's not pistuo. Pistuo is believing in something. It's moving from your head to your heart. It's taking some action on that belief. The thing that, that reminds me of a story when I was a kid, and, and maybe you experienced something very similar to this. I grew up in Austin, Minnesota, and I remember being a kid, and we would regularly go uh, down to the YMCA uh, to go swimming. And I remember being a very small child, and, and maybe you might remember uh, when you first learned uh, to swim, and uh, I remember going into the YMCA, and at one end of the swimming pool, there was the diving board, right? And maybe you remember um, looking at that diving board or maybe even stepping out onto that diving board and in the water is your dad, right? Kind of treading water with his hands up. Hey, just jump on in, right? Right? And, and you look at that guy and do you believe that is your father? Do you believe that is your dad? And you're like, yep, he's the guy that lives in my house, right? And there's my mom sitting over there. I believe that is my mom. She's drinking a can of Tab, right? Anybody remember Tab back in the, back in the day, right? So, I mean, we, we all understand. You know, I believe that's my dad. I believe that's my mom. And here I am standing at this diving board. That's believing in that, in that those are people. But it's an entirely different thing to actually step off that diving board. Because once you step off the diving board, there is no turning back. At that point in time, you are trusting, you are believing in your dad that he's actually going to catch you and not move your arms away going, psych, and watch you kind of go underwater, right? If you, if you were a dad and you did that, shame on you, right? That's horrible. But that's the difference between believing that something is real and believing in someone. And when we believe in someone, we actually trust them to do what they said they're going to do. And it always requires action on our part to step out and believe. Pistuo. Not just go, yep, I believe that, and then sit back and watch it happen. That is not belief that's going on in the story here. So my question for you this morning 
is do you believe? Do you believe? Are you willing to step out based on the evidence that we heard this morning? This was the first sign, the first piece of evidence, the first eyewitness account that John's laying out his case for who Jesus was and is. And Brady, if you want to go back to John 20, I want to remind you again why this matters. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe, pistuo, that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuer, the one sent from God, the Son of God. For what purpose? That we, through believing in him, we might have life in his name. You might be skeptical. Because it's not entirely clear. We're not eyewitnesses, right? And so I want to invite you to come back for the next six weeks to continue to peel back the evidence, to explore, to wrestle, just as the disciples did for three years. I believe, I don't know if I believe. But at some point in time, all of us need to respond to this message and invited to step out and believe into our Father's arms. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you didn't just do what you did in a vacuum or just maybe even to a handful of people, but Lord, you revealed yourself to dozens and dozens of people to hundreds of people. And God, there are many eyewitnesses to what you did in the life of Jesus. And God, we're just grateful that some of these people um, uh, had the conviction to write this stuff down so that here we are a couple thousand years later, we're sifting through the evidence. And God, though we were not, uh, we are not eyewitnesses. You've invited us to believe, to believe, to rest in your arms so that we can have life, abundant life, and eternal life. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.